Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. your Bible or your phone and you'd like to follow along this morning, my first scripture this morning we will read from Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, I'm excited about this message. I'm just going to go ahead and lay out what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the power of unbelief, the power of unbelief. And I'll just give you my thesis statement right up front. Is that okay? God deals harshly with unbelief because it short circuits his power his promise, his provision, and his plan in our lives. Let me say that again. Unbelief will short-circuit the power of God in your life, the promises of God in your life, the provision of God in, of your life, and the plan that God has for you. I'm not just making this up. I'm going to show you scripture after scripture and story after story in the Old and New Testament where people's unbelief stopped the power of God which sounds like an oxymoron, because how can anyone stop God? Right? Well, let's look at it. The first one we're going to look at is Mark chapter 6. I admit this morning I've got so much material, I feel like a mosquito at a nudist colony. I don't know where to start. Thank you for laughing. Grace and I debated whether that joke was appropriate for church. She said no, and I just went for it anyway, because that's what you got to do sometimes. Amen? Mark chapter 6. <laughs> oh, praise God. Hallelujah. Mark chapter 6. This is Jesus. How many know it's good to talk about Jesus in church? I was writing my notes this morning, and Gracie and I were talking about this is our last Sunday here, and I was like, I said, uh, where is it we go to church? And Gracie goes, High Country Christian Church. I'm like, no, no, what, what's the name of the building we meet in? She's like, I don't know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's New Life Fellowship at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which I admit I didn't even know. I'm excited about this new season that we're about to go into in our church. Amen. We're going to talk a little bit about next steps this morning and how to break out of unbelief. And I believe this is a new season for our church, a new phase for our church. Amen. So I encourage you during this time of transition to press in a little bit more into God. Spend a little bit more time in prayer and worship and in the word because every time transition happens... There are a lot of things happening behind the scenes and around the edges. And the enemy would like nothing more than to get in and start doing things right as we're transitioning to a new place. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's look at Mark chapter 6. This is Jesus, verse 1 of Mark 6. And I'm reading from the New Living, in case my version sounds a little different than yours. Verse 1 says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. And the next Sabbath, or we could say the next Sunday, he began teaching in the synagogue, or we could say church. So Jesus is preaching at his, his hometown church. And many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Apparently they'd heard about him, and now they're seeing him live and in color. And they scoffed, saying, he is just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. And notice this phrase, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Which is amazing, because they were amazed at his teaching and at his miraculous power, yet 
they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Even, even when we see God moving, we can still choose to not believe it. These people saw Jesus preaching. Imagine watching Jesus preach. Imagine being amazed at his preaching and at his miraculous power and then choosing to be offended and refusing to believe in him. Let's go on. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his family. Now notice verse 5. And because of their unbelief, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the universe, who saved all of us, who shed his blood, could do no mighty work among them except to place his hands on a few sick folk and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And notice that their unbelief stopped the unlimited, untapped potential power of God in their town. Amen? These people, think about this, these people stopped God, which tells us that we can stop God in our lives with our unbelief. Unbelief in the Greek is the word apistia, apistia, and the word for faith in the Greek is pistis, and this is that same word pistis, but with an A added in front of it. Now in Greek, whenever you add an A in the front of any word, it creates an opposite word or an absolute, a polar opposite of that word. So the opposite of faith is unbelief. And the word unbelief means faithless, unfaithful, weak in faith, or disobedience, which I think is so interesting. One of the commentaries I looked at about this word says it means to withhold belief in the power and promises of God. So it is the opposite of having faith. It is the opposite of believing, and it is the opposite of obedience, unbelief. And when we allow the seeds of unbelief to grow up unchecked in our heart, it short-circuits the power of God, the promises of God, the provision of God, and the plan of God in our lives. And how many know that's bad? Amen? I want to read just one more verse, and then we're going to go to the old, uh, not yet. We're going to go to Hebrews 3 next, but not yet. Uh, Mark 16, verse uh, 14, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read this one scripture. This is after Jesus uh, is risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples, and he's about to give them the Great Commission. And in verse 14, it says, Jesus appeared to the eleven disciples as they were eating together, and he rebuked them. Can you imagine being rebuked by Jesus? The old, if you raised with the King James like I was, it says Jesus abraded them. I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad. Jesus abraded his disciples for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe that those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. Sweet Jesus, the Lamb of God, loving Jesus, pure love, pure mercy, pure compassion, yelled at his disciples for their stubborn unbelief. And why was he, he was so hard on them about this? In the Greek, this word rebuke, literally means to hit someone in the mouth. Now, don't go preaching this message that Sean said Jesus punched the disciples. Jesus did not punch the disciples, but he did sternly rebuke their unbelief because he knew if he could not root it out of them, it would stop the plan of God from occurring in their lives. Amen? Because unbelief short circuits the power of God, the promises of God, the plan of God, 
and the provision of God in our lives. And I want all of those things in manifestation in my life all the time. I want nothing hindering the plan of God for my life. So we're going to have to root out unbelief and replace it with belief, with faith, with obedience. Ooh. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about the children of Israel, and we're going to see some examples. Is that okay? Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews here is comparing Moses' ministry to Jesus' ministry. And then we're going to go back and look at some of Moses' ministry. I'm going to read several verses here from Hebrews chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, so you can say right away, this is written to you. Amen? You are a brother and sister who belong to God, and you are partners with those who are called to heaven. So you can just go ahead and mark it in your Bible. This is written to me. Think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. We're going to read about Moses a little bit more in a minute. But notice that Moses was entrusted with God's entire house. That would be the nation of Israel when he led them out of Egypt into the promised land. Verse 5, Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. We are now God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. How many know as a Christian you're going to need some courage to walk what you want to walk through and to get to where God wants to get you? Amen? Verse 7, that is why the Holy Spirit says, now pay attention to these next verses. This will be kind of the crux of the message. Today, when you hear his voice, I love it when they play the pronoun game, his voice would be God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Notice this is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit to encourage us not to harden our hearts. As Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, this is God talking, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So even in the middle of a move of God, people can have unbelief, turn against what is happening, and harden their hearts, which they're going to call unbelief, toward what God is doing. Verse 10, this is how God feels about unbelief. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. That would be disobedience. And we said one of the definitions of unbelief is disobedience. Verse 11. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Why? Because God cannot do anything in their situation anyway. Their unbelief has stopped him from moving in their lives. And he's like, well, they're not going to make it. I'm going to find someone else. Verse 12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving. He kicks it up a notch. He calls unbelief evil. He's called it disobedient. He's called it rebellion. Turning away from the living God. What's the answer always? To turn towards God. You must warn each other every day. Verse 13, your version may say, encourage each other every day while it is called today. So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So unbelief is deception. It comes from sin, 
and it will harden you. It will start to build a wall in your life between you and what God wants to do for you. That's what unbelief literally does. It starts to build a wall between you and the power of God, between you and the promises of God, between you and the provision of God. God is right there ready, willing, and able to give you provision, and unbelief starts to build that wall between you and him. Let's keep going. Verse 14, For we are, if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember, it says, today when you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Now he calls unbelief rebellion. It just keeps getting worse. Verse 16, and who was it who rebelled against God even though they heard his voice? Church people coming to church regularly hearing the voice of God yet still had unbelief in their hearts. Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? Who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned? Whose dead bodies lay in the wilderness? Unbelief got them nowhere. And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? Verse 19, we'll conclude here. We see then that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Because of unbelief, they were not able to enter and put in whatever you want. Because of unbelief, they were not able to enter into healing. Because of unbelief, people are not able to enter to God's promises. Because of unbelief, people are not able to enter into his full plan for their lives. Amen? It builds that wall. All these phrases that he uses about unbelief, evil and unbelieving, hardening of hearts, rebellion, disobeying. Because of unbelief, they were not able to. To enter. Why is God so serious here dealing with unbelief? Why was Jesus so serious with the disciples about unbelief? Because there is nothing he can do with people who do not believe. Unbelief puts up that wall. It stops his power. I shouldn't say it stops it entirely. Jesus was still able to minister. God will do as much as he can do with an unbelieving person. But I wrote, it short circuits his power, his promises, his provision, and his plan from occurring full strength 100% in an individual's life. Amen? Do you mind if we go back to the Old Testament and look at this from the Old Testament perspective? Since we talked about Moses here in Hebrews chapter 3, and the writer of Hebrews says, Moses' work was an illustration of the truth that God has for us today. So I'd like us to look at Numbers 13 and 14. We're going to talk about the children of Israel and how they, because of their unbelief, talked themselves out of the plan of God for their lives. And then we're going to wrap up with what can we do to stand against unbelief and root it out of our lives. Amen? As you're turning to Numbers 13 and 14, I just want to paint the picture of what we're going to read. So the children of Israel, let's go back in time. We need to go back in time here for a minute, like 5,000 years or however long ago it was. I don't know. So there's a group of Israelites. They're living in Egypt. They came to Egypt because of Joseph and the famine. Remember all that? Think back to Flannel Graph and Children's Church. They went to Egypt, Joseph, flannel graph. They're in Egypt for 400 years. Pharaoh, at some point, makes them slaves in Egypt. So now they've been slaves in Egypt, the children of God, slaves in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're crying out for a deliverer. Now I'm going to con contrast some Old Testament theology and some New Testament teaching. So just hold on. Egypt is a type of the world. 
Slavery is a type that you were a slave to sin before you came to God. Moses is a type of Jesus. He delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, from the world, from an evil ruler, Pharaoh, and he brought them to the mountain of God, which is a type of you coming out of your sin, being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When they left Egypt, it says that... um, it says that their neighbors brought silver and gold and gave it to the, the Israelites as they left Egypt. Think about how crazy this is, because imagine you go to your neighbor, they give you all their silver and gold, and then you take it into the desert. You have no use for gold in the desert. So all these people are walking around the desert, no food, no water, but lots of gold, and they're in a dry place. This is a type of when you first get saved, You have this treasure of God in an earthen vessel, but you immediately go into a dry place where friends abandoned you, family turns against you, and you face persecution. But you have this treasure, but you don't know what to do with it. So what happens after that? They go through the Red Sea. This is a type of baptism. They make a public confession that we are God's people by coming through the water, by our enemies being destroyed, and we come out on the other side, and now people know we are the children of God. The scripture there says that a fame about the children of Israel began to spread throughout the land, and enemies knew that God fought for these people, just like baptism today. Amen? Then what happens? God starts to lead them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. When we are young Christians, God begins to lead us. He begins to teach us. He begins to guide us in that place, and he begins to bring him to himself. They were going from Egypt to Mount Sinai to hear the voice of God and for the word of God to be delivered to them. And, th- and this is very interesting. <clears throat> they had to start to begin to place importance on following God. Whenever the pillar of cloud came or the pillar of fire by night, they had to, if it left, they had to immediately pack up all their stuff and follow his presence. And we, on our journey, we have to learn to give priority to the presence and power of God. And wherever he's leading us, that needs to start becoming the most important thing. The number one thing that God is trying to teach them is how to go from slavery to sonship, which is exactly what's happening to us in the new covenant. He's trying to get this slave mentality out of them and show them how they are his children and how he has a place prepared for them that they are going to have to journey to. Amen? There's several other things he does. I'm just going to hit a few of them. He teaches them how to fight. Remember in Exodus 17 when the Amalekites come. But the fight wasn't about how strong they were. The fight was if they could keep their hands up and see the Lord defeat the army on their behalf. That's another lesson we have to learn as believers, how to let God fight our battles for us, even when everything in us wants to fight of our own accord. Then what do the people do? They start complaining. They start to get negative. How many know it's easy in our culture in this generation to go to the negative? This isn't new. They immediately said, this Christian life is hard. We want to go back to Egypt when we were slaves in the kingdom of darkness. Have you ever been tempted or pulled or is trying to pull you back? and the things that God has delivered you from. That's exactly what they get, went through here. It was better in Egypt. They start missing their worldly carnal friends. They start missing the parties that they used to go to when they were slaves to that system. But God wants sons, and he wants children who will carry his presence. 
and he leads them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them his word, the Ten Commandments. We can boil the Ten Commandments down into three. Jesus boiled them down into two. Learn to honor God, learn to honor your family, and learn to honor your community. And Jesus takes it a step further when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. God wants a personal relationship with his people, the children of Israel. But they want Moses to talk to God for them. And that's exactly what happens in church now. People want their preacher to get with God and hear from God and do all the spiritual stuff so that they can live however they want to and then come to church on Sunday. This started right here. They said, we're not going to go up to the mountain where God's presence is. Moses, you go up and talk to God and then you let us know what he says. God is not interested in just talking to the preacher. He's interested in talking to you. And that was his plan from the very beginning. So they encounter God at Mount Sinai. They come to his presence. God gives them direction. He comes down to their level to personally talk to them. Then he begins to give them provision. Remember this with manna, quail, and water. He teaches them that he's their healer. He teaches them that he's their source. He teaches them that he's their provision. He is their living word. He is their protector. Water is coming out of rocks. And he is trying to get them to the promised land. And they are so sure that this land is for them from God that they name it the promised land. The land that we're going to get to. That is God's plan for our lives. And we're going to start in Numbers 13. I've caught you all the way up to where they are on their journey. Whew. That was an oral history of the children of Israel. I'm sure we can pick that apart. If you want to read the whole thing, read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's, it's a long story, and there's a lot of um, names in it. But we're going to pick it up in Numbers chapter 13. I suppose I should turn there myself. Numbers chapter 13. They, are, they have just got to the border of the promised land. And Moses. this is where Moses sends out the 12 spies. Numbers chapter 13. They've hidden numbers from me. It was so easy to find on my couch this morning. Now that I'm on the, in the moment, it's eluding me. I'm going to drink some water now. I always announce I'm going to drink water because this one time I spilled water all over, the, all over the pulpit and all over my notes and all over my Bible, and it was the most awkward preaching experience of my entire life because water's just dripping off the pulpit. So now, to prevent calamity, I always announce when I'm about to drink water. You haven't lived till you've spilled water all over the pulpit as you're preaching. Your notes are soaking and sticking together, and the writing's fading off, and you're like, oh, God, get me out of this one. Numbers 13, let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, The Lord now said to Moses, Send out man, men, to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to you. Send one leader from each of the 12 tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sends out men, and then all the men are listed there. Verse down, 17. Moses gave the men these instructions, and he sent them out to explore the land. Go north to the Negev and to the hill country. See what the land is like. Find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do they have towns, have walls, or are they unprotected? Is the soil good or bad? Are there trees? Bring back some crops. Verse 21, so they went and explored the land. They went all over the place, and they come back uh, in verse 23 or 4, and they brought giant grapes and pomegranates, 
and uh, verse 25. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us, and it is indeed a good land, a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Just because God has made you a promise and a provision, it doesn't mean there's not going to be a fight. Amen? The Amalekites live there, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. Everyone lives there, the Canaanites, the Termites, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and along the Jordan Valley. <laughs> it's a good land that God has promised us, and it flows with milk and honey. It's a land of abundance, but there are some giants there. There are some enemies there. For us to go into the next phase that God has for us, we may have a fight on our hands. But notice this, verse 20, Caleb quiets the people, stands up before Moses and said, let's go at once. We can certainly conquer it. Amen? But the other men who explored the land with him disagreed. We cannot go there. They are stronger than we are. How many know they're getting off script at this point? Moses told them to go explore the land and bring back a report. And that is what they have done. They have obeyed the leader. And now we've got two thoughts. Are we going to obey the will of God or not? And Caleb says, let's do it. God has said we can do it. This is ours. Let's go do it. And the people are like, we can't do it. They're stronger than we are. Which is interesting because God hasn't shown up yet. God doesn't show up until chapter 14, verse 10. He's going to show up and tell them what he thinks about the situation. But it's fascinating to me how far God lets them go before he intervenes, which to me is an example of his mercy. At this point, all the people have done is done exactly what Moses asked them to do. And now they're giving their opinion on what God has already said. But God hasn't judging them yet, which tells me that God is not afraid of our reality or of the reality of the situation we are facing. So many times in church, we're so afraid to talk about what's really going on or the truth of the situation because we're supposed to stay in faith. So we're supposed to talk about how it's not really that bad. But God is not offended. He does not judge them talking about the reality of the situation. Yes, there are giants there. Yes, it's going to be difficult. But he's waiting to see, are you going to agree with what is real? Or are you going to agree with what he has already said about the situation? Amen? So they spread this bad report, verse 32, among all the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. This is the progression of unbelief. It starts with a person and what they saw, and now it's spreading to a community. And you have a choice and a decision. Are you going to go with the unbelief, or are you going to go with what God says? All the people we saw there are huge. There are giants there. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. Then all the children of Israel start weeping. They cry all night. They protest against Moses and Aaron. We should have died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord taking us to this new place only to have us die? And Moses and Aaron fall down before the people, and they say, Don't do this. You saw the land. It's awesome. The Lord is pleased with us. He will bring us safely into that land. Faced with reality, they go back to what God has said. Verse 10. 
or verse 9, he says, but the Lord is with us, don't be afraid. Verse 10, the whole community begins to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Then the presence of the Lord shows up, and God's going to say what he thinks about the situation. And what does he say? This is crazy. The Lord says to Moses, verse 11, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Why do they not believe me, even after all the miraculous signs I've done among them? Think about all the things they've seen at this point. They saw the ten plagues of Egypt, God's supernatural power to deliver them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. From slaves, they've seen manna and quail and provisions and battles and water and so many things. And they're right here at the edge of going into the next phase of what God has for them. And they decide God can't do it. And, and God here says, they will never believe me, even after all these signs I've done among them. I will disown them and destroy them, and I will make you a nation, Moses, greater and mightier than they are. Isn't that crazy how harsh God is? But when you understand it in the concept of unbelief, you know there was nothing he could have done anyway. They had stopped the plan of God in their lives because of their unbelief. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. Because of their words, they looked at a reality and they decided to agree with that reality above what God had already said. And God said, there's nothing more I can do for them. And he says to Moses, Moses, let's just you and me go start over and we'll, we'll do it my way with, with other people. Moses here is praying to the Lord and he reminds the Lord, um, where does he say? In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, this is verse 19 of chapter 14, please pardon this people, just as you have forgiven them ever since we left Egypt. And the Lord says, I will pardon them as you requested. But as surely as you live and as surely as the earth is filled with the glory of God, not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have seen my presence and the miracles I performed, but again and again they've tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. This is such a sad story. <laughs> they wander in the wilderness, they all die, and then their children go into the land and do everything that God had for them. God will always find someone who is willing to agree with him and do what he wants done on the earth. I want to be one of those people. Amen? I don't want my life to mean nothing and my corpse to end up in the wilderness and no one knows my name and everyone's like, oh, well, he failed. Let's see what we're doing on time here. We're at 30 minutes. Can you guys take a little bit more? All right. Let's talk about, let's jump from that and talk about what do we do, solutions to unbelief. Did I tell, give you enough of the children of Israel? You all saw the process at work in an entire nation of people. All right, we don't want to do that. We want to believe God and his promises. The main thing I want you to see is they had God's promises. And they chose to stop his promise in their life because of their unbelief. It was a conscious decision. It wasn't just, oh, this happened. It was a conscious decision where they stopped God. Just like those people stopped Jesus and his power in the first scripture we looked at in Mark. It is one thing to have doubt. We are human. It is one thing to acknowledge the reality of a situation. But what has God said? Because what he says is always a higher truth and know that your unbelief short circuits even his word i wanted to read from mark 11 where jesus curses the fig tree and he talks about the opposite of unbelief belief you can study that out on your own it's fascinating we're going to go to solutions for unbelief i've got four of them you all ready 
All right. Uh, number one, we read it in Mark 6, the opening scripture, when Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Verse 7 says, Jesus went around the villages teaching the word of God. Solution number one to unbelief is feeding on the right things. What are you feeding on? Are you feeding your faith or are you feeding your doubt and unbelief? Jesus's answer to unbelief was to teach the people the word of God. And verse 6 and verse 7 in Mark 6 are connected by the word and. He saw their unbelief and he did something about it. He never just left them in unbelief. He immediately began to teach the word of God, a higher level of truth to counteract their unbelief. What are we feeding on? Amen? We want to feed on good things, godly things, things that will build up our faith and not tear it down. Amen? Um, we're not going to read this, but in Mark 11, remember when Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be removed and be thou cast into the, not into the, be cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. He slips in doubt in there. I had a preacher say once, when God is bigger to you than the mountain, the mountain will move. Stop talking about how big the mountain is, how imposing the mountain is, how the mountain is never going to move, how all you can see is the mountain, and start talking about God. And when God becomes more real to you and bigger to you than the mountain, your belief system will change from unbelief to belief, and the mountain will move. And you're like, where did that mountain go? I don't even remember that mountain. All I'm looking at is the promises of God. Solution to unbelief number two, encouragement. We read in Hebrews 3.13, that was that long scripture on from Hebrews, that we must warn each other while it is called today that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardening against God. Your version might say you should encourage each other every day. And the Greek word there for encourage is parakaleo. Parakaleo, which is in the same family of Greek words as parakalitos, one of my favorite Greek words, because parakalitos is the Greek word for the Holy Spirit. He is the parakalitos. And I always think about it because parakalitos sounds like parrot to me. And I always think about the Holy Spirit being a parrot who's on my shoulder like a pirate. He's right there all the time, ready to talk into my ear. He is the parakalitos. And the writer of Hebrews uses this word parakaleo, which is very similar to say encourage. Parakaleo means one who comes along beside you, wraps his arm around your shoulders, and speaks truth to you. There are people in your life who are speaking truth, who are speaking life, who are speaking faith, who are speaking belief, who are speaking about God, who are building you up. And there are people in your life who are speaking death, who are speaking unbelief, who are minimizing God, who are minimizing your faith, who are only talking about the mountain, and they're fighting to see what you will do with it. If your faith will overcome or if other negative words will overcome. You, I'm just going to help you out here. You need to minimize those people in your life. No matter how hard it is, if you want to go on with God. Because at some point, your belief in the word of God is going to propel you into the plan of God. And those people, whether they know it or not, are keeping you from all that God has for you. They are building unbelief in your heart. Amen? They are coming alongside of you and speaking. You need to bat them away. Get behind me. It's hard, especially when they're family members or close friends. You, you can just blame me. 
like my preacher said, I need to stop talking to you. You're building unbelief in my heart, and I want to go into the promised land. Amen? That works every time. Because at that point, you're a weird Christian, and they want to get away from you. Amen. Number three, how to deal uh, with unbelief. Turn towards God. Hebrews 3.12, turn towards, your, towards God. Hebrews 3.12 said they had turned away from God and hardened their hearts against him. So the opposite would be turn towards God and soften your heart towards him. Let his presence soften your heart in different areas where you may have issues with unbelief. Unbelief always comes from a lack of knowledge. When you know something is true, you believe it. Amen? If you don't know the will of God in any area, find out what his will is. Then when you have that knowledge of his will, you will believe his will. You will have faith in what he wants to do. And then he can lead and guide you in his will. The children of Israel had perfect knowledge of the will of God. They called this place that he was taking them the promised land. That's how sure it was. And then they talked themselves out of it. That's crazy. God wants us to talk ourselves into his plan. Amen? So turn towards God. Let his presence soften your heart in the areas where you have doubt and struggle. Number four, this is the last one. And I will wrap up right here. Let's go. Final scripture, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we'll finish with Jesus. We started with Jesus. We'll end with Jesus. Mark chapter 9, this is where he's praying for the man whose son is possessed by devils, which is always a fun day. And, you know, the devil's tormenting this kid, and he's throwing him around, and he's convulsing. And the disciples pray for this kid, and nothing happens. And they bring him to Jesus and said, Jesus, can you do something? This kid's freaking out, which is always super fun in church. And uh, it's interesting, before Jesus deals with the son, he deals with the father. And we're going to pick up the story in Mark 9, verse 20. But they brought the boy to Jesus, and the, the the evil spirit saw Jesus. It throws the kid into a fit. Jesus asked the father how long this has been happening. The father says, since he was little, have mercy on us. Verse 23, Jesus says, anything is possible to a person who believes, which means the opposite is possible. Nothing is possible to a person who has unbelief. Nothing is possible to a person who has unbelief. What was possible for the children of Israel? Nothing. They all died in the wilderness. And then God took their kids and they went on with God. But to those of us who believe, anything is possible. Verse 24, the father says to Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus says, bring me the child. And he talks to the spirit, commands him to come out. The spirit comes out. The boy looks dead. Jesus walks up to him, takes him by the hand, helps him to his feet, and he stands up. And afterwards, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer, and some versions say prayer and fasting. What does that mean? We have to get in the presence of God to overcome unbelief. As God gets bigger and his plans get more sure and his word gets stronger, as we grow in the things of God, our unbelief gets smaller and smaller and smaller And God can start to take us where he wants to take us. He can navigate us where he wants to navigate us. I believe there are so many things that God wants us to do individually and as a church. But he can only do so much. And then he has to work with us to fulfill his plans and his purposes on the earth. Amen. 
Our job is to get out of his way and believe and trust him and let him work. Amen? Well, that's about all I have this morning. I hope that was encouraging to you. I know that was a lot. I somehow printed out six pages of notes. I don't know how this happens. seems to happen every time. I have, I have too much material. And then it's always like, Lord, what do you want me to emphasize? And I think that was the main thing. We are getting ready to go into a new season as a church. It is not a time for unbelief. It is a time for believing. It is a time for faith in God's promises. It is a time to trust in what he has said and believe that he is taking us to a good place where his provision will be daily increasing in our lives. Amen. He has more for us to do. Now is not the time to back up, back down, or back away, but to press in. And let's just see where he'll take us, how far we can go with him, how many people we can impact for the kingdom. Amen. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. I want him to be amazed at our faith. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll, we'll close up. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.